I've been travelling and got talking with another fellow tourist and ended up hanging out with him. Well, let me tell you a story about John Martin Scripps. Not the guy you want to meet on holiday, and certainly not someone to hang out with. Although, in the end, it was he that would be hanging. Hi, I'm your host Cambo. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So let me tell you about poor old Jared Lowe. He'd just flown into Singapore from Joburg on the 8th of March 1995. He was there to do a bit of shopping for electrical and electronic stuff. As he was checking into the Riverview Hotel, Scripps, travelling as Simon Davis, struck up a conversation with him and suggested they save some money and share a room. Gerard agreed and they checked in and went to their room number 1151. Within moments of entering the room, Scripps pulled a 40,000 volt taser from his bag, zapped Gerard on his neck, immobilising him, and then took a large 3 pound or 1.5 kilo hammer from his bag. While Gerard lay stunned on the ground, Scripps repeatedly struck Gerard's head with the hammer. Scripps then dragged Gerard's body into the bathtub and proceeded to disarticulate his body into 10 parts. Now I say disarticulate his body, as he just didn't cut him up. He used his skills he acquired working in a prison butchery to precisely cut the body apart at the joints. He then placed all the body parts into plastic bags and put those bags into one large travel suitcase. The next morning, Scripps would ask the receptionist to take Gerard's name off the room register as he had kicked him out after Gerard had made homosexual advances towards him. Over the next two days, Scripps would then use Gerard's credit cards to withdraw 8,400 Singapore dollars worth of cash, buy a Thompson video recorder, some Iowa speakers, Nike shoes, plus a few lottery tickets. That night, he would go to the Singapore Symphony Orchestra performance at the Victoria Concert Hall as you would after a hard couple of days of killing and plundering. On the morning of the 11th, Scripps walked out past reception with the suitcase at around 4am and threw the bags into the river behind the hotel and disposed of the suitcase, which was never recovered. Dexter comes to mind, but as you will hear, he was no Dexter. Later that day, Scripps would transfer 8400 Singapore dollars and 5,000 US travellers' checks into the San Francisco bank account held under the name John Martin via the Thomas Cook office in downtown Singapore. He then buys a plane ticket to Bangkok onto Phuket and back to Singapore, leaving at 7pm that night. Now, Gerard had told his wife he would call her as soon as he checked into the hotel on the 8th, so she became worried when she didn't hear from him when expected. He was also expected home on the 11th or the 12th of March, depending on seat availability. She filed a missing persons report with the South African High Commission in Singapore, as he would always call his family daily whenever abroad. On the 13th and 16th of March, body parts are found floating off Clifford Pier in Singapore. 
In one bag was a torso. Another was a pair of legs cut off at the knee and some thighs. Eventually, police would link the missing person's report to the body parts and on the 28th of March, Gerard's wife would formally identify his body parts as well as other personal belongings. But let me step back a bit and give you some background on Scripps. Born on the 9th of December 1959 in Letchworth, Hertfordshire in the UK to Leonard and Jean Scripps. Leonard Scripps was a truck driver and often John would travel with him on his runs. They had a very close bond that was shattered when Leonard committed suicide in 1968. John was only nine years old. At around this time, Scripps started having developmental issues and found it difficult to read and write. In 1974, he would drop out of school at 15 years of age, remaining semi-illiterate the rest of his life. He liked to travel and would get work where he could and even sold antiques occasionally. In 1974, Scripps would be convicted of his first crime. He would be convicted of burglary and sentenced to a 12-month conditional discharge and fined £10. He would be busted several more times in the next couple of years and in June 1978, he would be fined £40 for indecent assault. So as we often see, perpetrators aren't deterred by the punishments handed out by the courts and they will often evolve into more violent crimes. Scripps then took off to Mexico and met 16-year-old Maria Arellanos in Cancun, who would marry her in 1980, but two years later he would be sentenced to a three-year jail term for theft, burglary and resisting arrest. This really hurt Maria, and she finally dumped him when he absconded from jail while on home release, just three months short of his three-year jail term, and in which he would be caught again for burglary and a further three years added to his sentence. Maria would divorce him and marry a policeman, which infuriated Scripps. Eventually, Maria divorced her new husband, and Scripps calmed down. Funny thing, before Maria divorced her policeman husband, Scripps, while on home leave, broke into his house and stole some of his clothes. What was he thinking? In 1986, he's finally out of prison and Scripps changes his name to John Martin and starts trafficking drugs between Asia and Europe. I will continue to call him Scripps to avoid confusion. But if you want to do some Googling, use John Martin Scripps. In 1987, he was arrested at Heathrow Airport for possessing drugs. The cops found a safety deposit key on him that belonged to a bank in Singapore. Singapore's Central Narcotics Bureau would find 1.5 kilograms of heroin, which at the time was worth about 1 million US dollars. So in 1988, off to prison Scripps goes, this time for seven years. Now it looks like when Scripps is in prison, he becomes a model prisoner. And because of this, he gets certain privileges, like home leave. But in 1992, while on home leave, he does the bolt and doesn't come back. He doesn't get far and is sentenced to a further six years. He is placed in Albany Prison on the Isle of Wight from February 1992 
to August 1993. He again settles into prison life well, and while starting off doing jobs such as dishwashing and cleaning, they end up training him as a butcher. Scripps was trained by a couple of guys that had vast experience in butchery, and he became highly skilled. Scripps would tell others that he intended opening a butcher shop when he got out of the nick. So Scripps would behave himself at Albany Prison, and his security classification would be lowered. And in August 1993, they moved him to the Mount Prison in Hemel Hempstead, just northwest of London. He came up for a parole hearing in October 1993, but this was refused. Funny enough, a few days later, he was granted day leave from prison after police mistakenly recommended him for it. While waiting for the day leave to come through, Scripps sold off all his possessions. His mother called police and pleaded with them not to release him, as he would again run off. They ignored her, and as she predicted... Once on day leave, he used the birth certificate of a fellow inmate, Simon Davis, to get a passport and fled the country, ending up in San Francisco. On March the 28th, Tommy Wegner's body was found disarticulated in a dumpster at Polk Gulch, San Francisco. Police were to find that hours before his body was found, he was seen in a Polk Street bar with a guy matching Scripps' description. Some reports say that although he was investigated for the murder, that he wasn't in the area at the time. He then flew to Cancun, Mexico, where he tracked down his former wife to try and reconcile with her by telling her he was a changed man, had found God and had a new job importing silk from Thailand. She knew he was full of shit and had nothing more to do with him. British financial advisor Timothy McDowell, 28, was reported missing January 10, 1995, while on vacation in Mexico's Yucatan Peninsula. On February 8, Scripps transferred about 33000 from McDowell's London bank to an account he had set up at a Wells Fargo branch in San Diego. He later allegedly used McDowell's credit card in Singapore. It is believed Scripps killed him and fed his body to alligators. Timothy has never been found, although some remains were discovered that are believed to be Timothy's, but this was never confirmed. Police will come to the conclusion that it was Scripps that killed him. On the 11th of January 1995, a British tourist, William Shackle, 24, disappeared in Cancun, Mexico, and on that day... Someone cashed several thousand dollars worth of travellers' checks in Shackle's name. As time goes on, Scripps would also be suspected in connection to William's disappearance through banking records. William, like Timothy before him, would never be found. So that is two guys in two days in much the same area that go missing. But at that time, Scripps was able to fly under the radar as he had several aliases that he was travelling on. Scripps then flew from Mexico to Los Angeles on March the 2nd, using the name Simon Davis. He then travelled to San Francisco and opened an account at a Citibank branch under the name John Martin. 
Scripps flew from San Francisco to Singapore on March the 7th. And so we get back to the first murder I told you about at the beginning. So here we have a guy that couldn't read or write that well. He may even have suffered from dyslexia. He started off early in life with petty crimes that grew in violence and intensity. Every time he's sent to prison, he behaves and is given day release. But he always then does a runner. He then develops an MO of befriending tourists, killing them, chopping up their bodies with the skill of a butcher, then steals their cash and credit cards. Sounds pretty similar to Charles Sabrage that I talked about in episode 1. So Scripps has just murdered Jared Lowe, chopped his body into 10 parts at the joints, wrapped the parts into plastic bags, dumped them in the river and has taken off to Thailand. Most of Jared's body parts are found in the river except for his head and his wife identifies him on the 1st of April 1995. Scripps is travelling under the alias Simon Davis and on the 15th of March, he befriends Sheila May Damood and her son Darren John Damood, holidaying from Saanich, British Columbia, Canada. Sheila was quite an experienced traveller and quite well off. Scripps was sitting next to him on the flight from Bangkok to Phuket. He found that they were staying at Nilly's Mariner Inn at Patong Beach. As he had before, he checked into the same hotel as them, the Demoons in room 43 and Scripps in room 48. After breakfast the next day at 11am, the Demoons went back to their room to prepare to go out for the day. What was about to happen to them is every traveller's nightmare. Scripps knocked on their door and Sheila welcomed him in. Scripps quickly immobilised Sheila with the taser and then knocked Darren to the ground. Scripps then proceeded to use his hammer to kill both Sheila and Darren by bashing their heads in. He then disarticulated their bodies in the bathroom, bagged the parts up and went down to reception. Scripps told reception that the Demoods had left and that he would pay their bill, but he also wanted to switch to their room. Later on, Scripps would dump their skulls in a disused tin mine in the Kathu district while dumping other parts of their bodies along Ban Nayang Road. These body parts would be found days later already decomposing in the tropical heat. However, the torso, arms and legs of Darren were never found. On the 19th of March, Scripps decided to fly back to Singapore. Now at this stage... Scripps was travelling under the assumed name of Simon Davis. He had used a passport under this name to travel to Singapore and check into the Riverview Hotel where he had murdered Jared Lowe. So what the fuck was he thinking, flying back into Singapore a few weeks later under the same name? Police already had the name of Simon Davis linked to the missing Jared Lowe as they had checked into the hotel together. Scripps was arrested when he arrived at Changi Airport and while being held for questioning, he smashed a glass panel and tried to cut his wrists in what may have been a suicide attempt. Police found six passports on him. There was his own, two issued to Simon Davis 
Sheila and Darren Demood, and Jared Lowe's passport. All had Scripps' photo attached to them. He had Sheila's and Jared's credit cards on him, and he had Simon Davis's birth certificate he used to get the two passports in that name. Amazingly, he also had his murder bag with him, the 1.5 kilo hammer, the 40,000 volt taser, a can of mace, two pairs of handcuffs, a pair of thumb cuffs, two police brand foldable knives, an oil stone for sharpening his knives, and two Swiss army knives. Can you imagine bringing half of this shit through customs nowadays, let alone drag his whole murder bag from country to country? Scripps refuses to answer questions, and at this stage he is still known as Simon Davis. As police usually do, they initially charge him with whatever they need in order to keep him in custody. In Scripps' case, on the 21st of March, they charge him as Simon Davis for the forging of Jared Lowe's signature on a credit card transaction to obtain 8400 Singapore dollars on the 9th of March. On the 24th of March, his identity would now be revealed and he would be charged under his real name for the murder of Jared Lowe. He would subsequently be charged with other offences, such as more forgery offences, vandalism, possession of the taser, and possession of 24 Buddha sticks, or otherwise known as ganja, or weed. Scripps was pretty sure, if convicted, he would not get the death penalty. He thought he would spend some time in prison, then would get parole or release at a later date, as had happened to him previously. But this was Singapore, not the UK, and Singapore was ready to start executing Westerners. In fact, it would be only five days after his preliminary hearing for the murder of Gerard Lowe that they hanged Dutchman and drug trafficker Johan van Dam. So it was decided to go ahead with the trial on October the 2nd, after 39 witnesses were called and more than 100 exhibits and 100 photos were provided as evidence. Now, he wouldn't be subjected to a trial by jury. Rather, the prosecution and defence would plead their respective cases to the trial judge, T.S. Sinathery. Before the trial, Scripps would make a statement saying that he freaked out and killed Jared after waking up to find him touching his butt. He said he awoke to see Jared smiling at him, wearing only a towel. He kicked him away, and Jared retaliated by throwing Scripps' own hammer at him. Scripps grabbed the hammer and struck Jared on the head until he collapsed on the floor. Once he realised he'd killed him, he called up a friend who helped dispose of his body, as real friends do. He then said he walked around for the next few days in a daze, wondering what to do. Scripps then said that he flew to Phuket, where he met his friend again, saying that his friend then gave him the belongings of the Demudes, whom he actually did not meet at all. He would never give up the name of his imaginary friend because he feared for the safety of his family. During the trial, he would basically say the same thing, adding that he was not a violent man and that even though he worked in a prison butchery, that cutting up a human body was another thing, and that seeing the photos of the body parts made him sick. 
Although he admitted killing Jared Lowe in self-defence, he denied killing the Demudes and that he came back to Singapore to help clear his conscience over Jared's death. What sense this makes, I don't know. So on the 7th of November 1995, the judge adjourns the trial for three days to consider his verdict. On resumption, the judge was satisfied with the prosecution's version of events and dismissed Scripps' story. In his verdict, he said, I'm satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that Scripps had intentionally killed Lowe. After that, he disarticulated Lowe's body into separate parts and it was he who subsequently disposed of the body parts by throwing them into the river behind the hotel. On the evidence, I had no difficulty to find that it was Martin who was concerned with the deaths of Sheila and Darren and for the disposal of their body parts found in different sites in Phuket. The disarticulation of the body parts of Lowe, Sheila and Darren have the hallmark signs of having been done by the same person. Altogether, this similar fact evidence reinforces the decision I have made, for it puts beyond doubt that Martin is guilty on the charge of murder. The sentence of this court upon you is that you will be taken from this place to a lawful prison and taken to a place to be hanged by the neck until you are dead. And may the Lord have mercy on your soul. On the 15th of November, Scripps announced he would appeal the sentence, but changed his mind on the 4th of January 1996. He even turned down a chance to petition the President of Singapore for clemency, saying that he was impatient to be executed. The reality was that even if he received a custodial sentence rather than the death penalty, he would have had to spend a lot of time in a Singaporean prison, and on his release he probably would have been extradited to another country to face similar murder charges. He would have had to stay in prison for ages to avoid the statute of limitation of murder in Thailand that stands at 20 years. At this time, Scotland Yard wanted to question him over the disappearance of the two British nationals, financial advisor Timothy McDowell and accountant William Shackle, that went missing in Mexico while Scripps was known to be there. Scotland Yard also wanted to question him about money transferred from the two missing Britons' accounts into accounts owned by Scripps. Before he was hanged, his mother made a statement. Whoever he is now, he's the person the prison service trained him to be. These bastards have no right to take my son's life. I brought him into the world and I'm the only person who can take him out of it. And she also made remarks about how she told the prison service in Britain not to release him on day leave. She said, The Home Office have buried their head in the sand over this. They know full well that if they had done what I told them, none of this would ever have happened. I begged them not to let him go. His poor mum, hey? Reality is, even if they hadn't let him out early on day release when he absconded to Mexico, he was always going to go back there at some stage to try and reconcile with his ex-wife, as he believed that his family and Maria were the only ones that ever loved him during his life. 
So it was announced that Scripps was to be hanged at dawn on Friday the 19th of April. Scripps spent his last days writing love poems to his ex-wife Maria from his tiny windowless cell, with the lights always on and a camera monitoring him permanently. There was a squat dunny, or toilet for the US listeners, and a straw roll mat as a bed. I won't bore you with the poems, but if you can, you can Google them if you really want to. They're not that good. For his last meal, he asked for a pizza and a cup of hot chocolate. So approaching 6am on the morning of April 19th, 1996, John Martin Scripps was heard to be crying. He lashed out at the guards, who then bound him with leather straps. He was now neutralised, naked and tightly bound. He then shit himself. They shoved a rubber bung between his teeth and put a rough hessian hood over his head. The noose was then placed around his neck, tight under his left ear. The lever creaked, and then the floor fell out from beneath Scripps' feet, and he momentarily felt that butterfly feeling in his stomach as he fell through the trap door. Then crack, as a rope reached its limit, and his neck broke apart. The executioner had failed to calculate the correct drop, and his head was almost ripped off. He was left there swinging for about 30 minutes, and then at 10.30am, his body was wrapped in a nice white sheet, and he was placed in a cardboard coffin, both supplied free of charge by the Singaporean people. He was transported in the back of an old truck to the funeral parlour on Sin Ming Drive. His mum and sister viewed the body, and he was cremated free of charge that afternoon. In fact, after he was cremated, his ashes spent that night with one of his relatives at the Riverview Hotel, where he killed Jared Lowe. Irony and karma collide. Boom. His ashes were taken back to England and scattered somewhere. Unknown. The outstanding investigations into the disappearance of Timothy McDowell and William Shackle in Mexico were basically closed, as it was believed that Scripps was the culprit. The Royal Thai Police also closed the files on the murder of Sheila and Darren Demood in Phuket, as all evidence pointed towards Scripps. They hadn't bothered trying to extradite him to Thailand before his execution, because they thought he would receive a harsher penalty in Singapore. So what was Scripps thinking while on his murderous run? Well, as Brian Williams, a liaison officer for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police based in Bangkok once said, you can rob without killing, and you can kill without cutting up the body into bits. This man went to such an extreme, and I can only think that he relished in what he was doing. In regards to his previous criminal justice experience, although he was sentenced to years in prison, he would behave himself and earn remissions and day leave. I think that he thought that the Singaporeans wouldn't hang a Westerner. In fact, he was the first Briton since Singapore's independence and the second Westerner after Johan van Damme to be executed in Singapore. So, true crime islanders, that's another tale of a deranged serial killer done for the day. Now, I have some announcements to make. Don't forget to check out Twitter for hashtag two pods a day 
which is promoting two different podcasts each day. Each podcast has been reviewed by other podcasters, so go check that out. Also on Twitter, you'll find not only me, but plenty of your favourite podcast hosts tweeting, and we're always getting into some friendly banner, so come and join in. Also check out the podcasts we listen to, and the True Crime podcast groups on Facebook. Both are great places to discuss podcasts, and there's a pretty good chance you can chat with your favourite hosts, as there are plenty of them on there. My Facebook site's just reached 50 members, so I'll start to post more stuff on there, as well as photos to my Instagram page, which is at True Crime Island, managed in part by Maggie, and I thank her for her help. Don't forget, you can go to my website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can stream or download all episodes, and there are links to Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and iTunes. If you want to provide support for True Crime Island and help get the word out, then rate and review on Stitcher and iTunes or join the Facebook group. This is a free way in help in building the island. I've just launched the True Crime Island merch shop, where you will be able to support me by purchasing all types of True Crime Island products featuring the new logo. At the moment, I have t-shirts and hoodies, but more merch will be available soon. Just click on the merchandise link on the website. I'm also about to launch a Patreon site for those that also want to help out on the island, and I'm on PayPal at cambo at truecrimeisland.com for those that want to donate to the cause. So finally, here are a couple of promos from my podcast friends, Murder Under the Midnight Sun by the lovely Ari and Bloody Murder by a couple of Aussies, Tara and Barney. So don't forget to delete your browser history. You've been listening to True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Hey guys, this is Arielle, host of Murder Under the Midnight Sun, an Alaskan true crime podcast. I've lived in Alaska now for over 30 years and have been a true crime junkie for almost as long and decided to combine those two things into a podcast. I'll be covering a wide variety of crimes from all across the state, everything from mass murders to serial killers to missing persons cases and beyond. So if you want to hear some compelling true crime stories that have never been covered by any other podcast or hear about some horrible serial killers whose names you've never heard, go ahead and give me a listen. You can find me on iTunes and Stitcher and follow me on Twitter at MurderTheSun. Thanks. Do you like your true crime stories so fresh with a splash of gallows humour? You stinking bastard. Do you want chills and thrills and gruesome details? Ah! Oh, don't do that, Barney. Hi, I'm Barney Black. And I'm Tara Saravan. We make bloody murder. Indeed. It's a weekly true crime podcast focusing on lesser-known serial killers and crime stories from Australia. And around the globe. The kind of stuff that you're very unlikely to hear about anywhere else. Bloody Murder is available on iTunes, Stitcher. And pretty much everywhere. 